0: Now let's turn back to the passage that we read earlier, Hebrews chapter 9, and uh, we're continuing to journey through this incredible book of Hebrews. Uh, it reminds us that Jesus is better. He is better. Nothing can be compared to Him. As you turn there, I want to uh, just share with you a little bit of, if you don't already know, the results of our family gathering last Sunday night. We have inaugurated beginning the first uh, Sunday in March, our 2020 vision, uh, which is a ministry focus for the next few years to guide us here at West Park. Uh, this has been affirmed now by the pastors or deacons, and now the entire church body has approved this, has three primary areas of focus. One has to do with just us as a congregation being more aligned in the way we uh, function and carry out the ministry as the body of Christ with the scriptures when it comes to uh, membership in the body of Christ and service in the body of Christ how do we align ourselves on that more clearly and so that's a process that uh, we're working on and be bringing some of those things to the church family for affirmation over the next several months also you know that as a part of that we have Instituted Cedarbrook Outreach which is a missions ministry to our Cedarbrook community and the 40,000 people who live within two miles of where you are seated 80% of whom have no place of church affiliation whatsoever that is amazing 36,000 uh, people 30, uh, 32,000 people at least as are, are shown we have a great Opportunity and responsibility. And so Cedar Brook Outreach is this missions ministry, a mission board, so to speak, that's being established. And we're in the process of sending out missionaries to serve and reaching children and our uh, young people and families at risk in our area. It's amazing what God is doing. And uh, we're excited about that. We already have t- uh, two uh, missionaries that are now serving this capacity. And we'll be sharing more with you about that. The third area, though, uh, and that 2020 vision had to do with our church campus. And about a month or so ago, we brought to uh, the church a a unanimous recommendation from our deacons and pastors about uh, a two-phase building approach here at the church for another building uh, in front of our existing gymnasium, which will be a nursery building, an early preschool building, and that allow us to change some of the use of other buildings we have here. And then after that, uh, the second phase is the building of a new worship sanctuary uh, for us to gather together as one body. And seeing this sanctuary changed into a chapel area and also some gathering space for classes and groups Sundays and throughout the week. So we're excited about that. It's a big venture uh, but that was adopted by a little over 96% vote last Sunday at our family gathering. So we're excited about the unity the Lord has given. And I ask you to be praying for wisdom now as plans begin for that. And then our faith, as uh, we understand more about what God will be asking us to do, that we will uh, give so that these, uh, these wonderful goals can be accomplished. But, It's exciting times uh, to be serving the Lord, and I hope you feel like serving the Lord right here at West Park Baptist Church. I hope you feel that way. I still do. I haven't decided to move my letter. I'm staying around, so I'm excited and looking forward to what the Lord's doing. Some people say, you know, at your age, shouldn't you be gearing down? No, I'm looking for another gear. I'm going higher, whatever that is. Uh, I'm excited for the days ahead. Now, here we have Hebrews chapter 9. Look there, if you would, with me, and we'll ask God to open it to our hearts this morning. In uh, April of 2016, a man passed away, and he passed away in a tragic death, an incredibly gifted man, but a man whose life was wasted in some ways and wasted away opioid use, but very famous. Uh, This was his symbol. Maybe you've seen this symbol before. This was the symbol of the the artist, the singer known as Prince. Prince. He called himself Prince. He died in April of 2016, and he died without a will. And his estate estimated at $200 million. And on May 15th, in Minneapolis a judge finally ruled on the estate. And the judge's decision was that Prince's sister and his five half-brothers and sisters would inherit the estate after over $100 million were paid in taxes and over $8 million in legal fees. In April, A.D. 33, a man died, a terrible, horrible death of injustice. This is his symbol. He called himself the prince, the prince. And he died with a will. And this will has no taxes on the estate. No legal fees. And here's really the good news. Every follower of the prince is named in his will and is an heir, a joint heir, a brother and sister named in the will as an heir of the prince. Would you like to hear about that will? Man, I've been living in it this week. So excited to read with you the will of the prince, in which, if you are a follower of Jesus, you're named. It's the will of our Lord. Last will and testament. That's what this passage is about. It is our Lord's last will and testament. That's what the new covenant is. We've been learning about the new covenant. Now, a covenant, you know, the word known now and in ancient times, a covenant meant a contract. It could mean a contract between two people or groups of people. A covenant was a contract. And all of the readers in the first century who received this letter understood the idea of contract. But especially for the Hebrews who received it, that is those Christians who were Jewish in their heritage. When they thought of the word covenant, they thought of a contract going back between God and the nation of Israel... There was a contract made at Mount Sinai between God and these freed slaves that he had brought out of bondage. He formed them into a nation and he entered into a contract. We call it the law, the old covenant. But it was a contract. But now, what we're going to see this morning is the word covenant has another meaning than contract. And suddenly, and without warning, the writer of Hebrews shifts to that other meaning. He's been talking about covenant, 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 and his idea has been contract, contract, contract. But then immediately, without warning, he changes the idea behind the same word, covenant. It's the same word. But he changes to the deeper meaning of a covenant. Because the word used here for covenant literally means a testament, a will. And so this passage, this passage that we've read this morning is the author's exclamation point to his main point that Jesus is better. Jesus is better because he has written a will. Jesus has planned the will. He has performed the will and he's provided for the inheritance of his people. This new covenant is the last will and testament of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know our Lord and Savior left a last will and testament? He did. And that's what the new covenant is. It's our Lord's last will and testament. Now this morning what I want us to do in this passage is to just ask some important questions about our Lord's last will and covenant, and testament, rather, and look at the awesome answers, because the answers are here in the verses that we just just read. The answers to the questions that we all want to know and we all want answered about this covenant, this last will and testament in which we're named. Well, here's the first question. When was the Lord's last will and testament established? When was it established? Now, in our experience, here's how a last will and a testament is established. It, at some point in time during a person's lifetime, he or she or maybe they as a couple... Uh, they make some decisions about their estate and they establish a will sometime during their lifetime. But that's not the case with our wonderful Lord. You see, he did not establish his last will and testament during his lifetime, but the Bible says long before he was ever born, he established this will and testament. Turn over in your Bibles to chapter 13. You're in chapter 9. You want to know when Jesus wrote his last will and testament? Here's the answer. Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 20 and 21. What a a beautiful passage of Scripture. Now, verse 20, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep... By the blood of the, next word, eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice it says this is the eternal covenant. It is the last will and testament of our Lord not written during his lifetime but before God said, let there be light. In eternity past, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit established the last will and testament of the Son who would become Jesus, our prince. Isn't that amazing? That's when it was established. Now, there's two wonderful truths that come to me from that, (laughs) and I hope they come to your heart. When I think about that the Lord's will and testament was written before time began, what that lets me know is that the plan of salvation was not an afterthought, was it? God didn't see Adam and Eve sin and ruin his creation, ruin his plan, and then God, so to speak, went palm to forehead. Uh oh, what are we going to do now? No, no. The plan of salvation was not an afterthought, it was thought in the mind of God from eternity past. And, friend, let me tell you this you know what that means? That means your personal salvation is not an afterthought. I want to tell every Christian here, listen. Before you ever formed your first thought, God had already thought of you. Before you had your first thought, God had thought about you. With thoughts of love and peace. Now, that's security, right? Someone asked the great Charles Spurgeon, the preacher, Do you think the Lord really loved us and chose us before we were born? And he said, Well, I know he must have loved me and chose me before I was born because he would certainly never have loved me and chose me after I was born. Right? Second question. When did the Lord's last will and testament take effect? Now, if it was planned in eternity past, when did it take effect? Well, look at verses 16 and 17. It tells us when it took effect. Verse 16 says, for where a will, and that's the same word for covenant in verse Fifteen. It's the same word, covenant and will here. Same word. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. The new covenant, now notice, the new covenant is a will. It is the last will and testament of our Lord. And when did it take effect? It was planned at eternity past, but when did it take effect? Verses 16 and 17 make it very clear. A will doesn't take effect until there's been a death. Whose death? The death of the one who made it," verses 16 and 17, the death of the one who made it." Now, we, we often refer to the one who makes the world the, the will as, they, as the testator, the testator of the will. And just to be clear, that doesn't mean a potato that's been tested. OK? That's not a testator, okay? That's not what that means. A testator is the one who's making the testament. He's the one or she's the one making the testament. A will takes effect with death. Now, even the first covenant, what was the first covenant? The law, the law of Moses. The writer says, even the first covenant was inaugurated with death. Verses 18 through 21 will not read them, but he describes Mount Sinai. Moses came down with the law, not just the Ten Commandments, but he also came down with the book of the law, all of God's commandments. And there at Mount Sinai, they entered into a contract with God as a nation, and the Bible says that Moses with Aaron took the blood of goats and calves... And they splashed the blood. They splashed the blood on the people. They splashed the blood on the book. They splashed the blood on the tent. They splashed the blood on all of the vessels. There was just blood everywhere. Why? Why blood? Well, here's God's answer. You want God's answer to why Blood was required for the covenant. Here's God's answer. You can turn there, but read it on the screens. Leviticus 17, 11. The Bible says, The life of the flesh... God said, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you, that is the blood, I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement, to make sacrifice that purifies, to make atonement for your souls for it is blood that makes atonement by life. Now, in 1620, a scientist, a Christian scientist, by the way, by the name of William Harvey, in 1620, was the first to discover the circulation system and to prove scientifically that the life of a person is in the blood. Now, William Harvey discovered that in 1620, but Almighty God declared it 3,000 years earlier, right? The Bible's always up to date. Matter of fact, it's ahead of itself because it's eternal Word of God. God declared the life of the flesh is in the blood. He says, and because the punishment of sin is what? Death. Life must be offered for life. There must be the yielding of a life because of the penalty of death. It's the blood that is offered for the sins of the people. Blood here means death. The life must be given for the sins of the people. And likewise now, friends, here's the writer's point. Death was required for the new covenant. The death of the author of the testament. The death of the one who planned the will. Our Lord's last will and testament could only come into force when he himself had died. Look at verses 24 through 26. For Christ has entered... Not into places made with hands, which are copies of the things. He's talking about the tabernacle or the temple. But he has entered into heaven itself. Now himself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. The high priest had to go in year after year after year on Yom Kippur and offer the blood of a sacrifice. This is not what Jesus did. For if that were the case, verse 26, then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, at the end and the beginning of the new age, the end of the old, the beginning of the new. And he appeared to do what? Not just cover sin. What's your Bible say? To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Not of the sacrifice of a lamb because he was the lamb. John said, behold the lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. Not just to cover it, but to take it away. And now Jesus has appeared in the temple in heaven and he himself is the eternal sacrifice. And he never needs to die again. Oh, my friend, put out of your mind forever the heinous thought that the way sinners are made right with God is to come to a church service where an offering is made again every Sunday as a sacrifice of Jesus. That's a heinous, heinous false talk Doctrine. When we come to the Lord's table, we don't come believing that in communion, the bread and the blood are a sacrifice. No, they represent the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. A perfect sacrifice. Now, here's the third question and an amazing answer. Here's the third question about this will and testament. Who is then the executor? Who is the executor of the Lord's last will and testament? Who's the executor? You see, the executor of a will, many of you know, can be just about any adult person. Just about any adult person can be the executor of a will except one person. There's one person who can't be the executor of the will. The person who can't be the executor of the will is the person who established the will. The person who established the will can't be the executor. Why? He's dead. (laughs) That's a problem. So somebody other than the person who established the will has to execute, has to carry out the wishes of the will because the one who wrote the will is dead. But how wonderfully different is our Lord's last will and testimony, right? Who is the executor of the will of Jesus? He is. He is the executor. Look at verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator. And the word mediator means executor. He is the executor of the new covenant. Well, how can Jesus be the executor of his own last will and testament? This is how he's not dead, he's alive. He was dead stone dead, not asleep, dead. And his will went into force. And he rose again to execute his own will. What a savior. Jesus is better, wouldn't you say? He's better. Who could ever do such a thing? Only one. The one who died and rose again. And Jesus died to provide for the distribution of the will that he established in eternity past. He didn't hand this over to anybody. He didn't hand it over to Peter. He didn't hand it over to the apostles. No one. No, this is his will, and he will execute his own last will and testimony. Now, that's the fourth question. Here's the fourth question. And what amazing grace is in this question. Here's the fourth question. Here then is this. Who are the heirs of the Lord's last will and testament? Who are the heirs? Because his will talks about heirs. Look at verse 15. It says, Therefore he is the Mediator, the executor of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised inter- eternal inheritance. You see that word? That's a word of will, the will and testament. There is an inheritance. Who gets the inheritance of Jesus? Who gets the riches of his will? Notice verse 15. Those who are called. Literally in the Greek, that, that's in the perfect tense. It's literally this. Those who have been called. Now listen up, friend. There are names in our Lord's last will and testament. There are names. Individual names. They are called by group terminology in the New Testament. They are referred to as the called. That's the heirs of the will. They are referred to as the chosen many times. That's the heirs of Jesus' will. Sometimes they are referred to as the elect. That's the heirs of Jesus' will. Now here's the question. When were the names written in the will? When were the names written in the will? Well, when was Jesus' will written? In eternity past. We just saw that before time began. You know what the Bible says? You know what the Bible says? In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, it says that the name of every heir of Jesus' last will and testament was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, the names of the people who would inherit the riches of Christ were written in that will, the Lamb's book of life. Well, that leads to a question, doesn't it? How can I know that my name is in the last will and testament of Jesus? How how can I know that? It's very simple. Look at verse 15. What are the heirs called? What are they referred to? They're referred to as those who are called. Those who are called. Listen to what I'm telling you. Do not let yourself go so deeply into quote-unquote theology that you lose your mind. Here's what I want you to hear. Who are the people who are named in our Lord's last will and testament? The Bible says the called. How do you know if you're one of the called? Here's the Answer. Have you answered the call? Whose call? The call of Jesus. Jesus is calling people. What's his call? Follow me. Turn. Turn from your life of selfishness. Turn from your own way. Turn from doing your own thing. That is leading to destruction. I'm calling you. I'm calling you. Turn. Come. Follow me. The called are the people who have determined with God's grace in their heart by his amazing love. They have heard the Lord's voice and they're following Jesus. And that's the only way you know that you're named in the will is if you have heard the Spirit of God, the voice of Jesus call you saying, Come, follow me. And you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have risen up from your sin. And you've turned from yourself. And you've followed Jesus. You're in the will. Praise God. You may be stumbling. You may fall flat on your face. You may go backwards from time to time. You may drift away. But you are called. You're following Jesus. He has you. You're His. That's how you know. Now, here's the question Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you a follower of Jesus? Put away from your mind, my friend, that there exists such a thing as a Christian who has not yet decided whether he or she is going to follow Jesus. That is a complete contradiction in terms. You do not make a decision that you want not to go to hell. You want to go to heaven. That's your decision, but you haven't decided yet whether you're going to follow Jesus. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus saying to you in love, follow me, follow me. I'm asking you today, have you heard his voice? Have you followed him? But here's the question in this moment. Are you hearing his voice now? Will you follow him? Those who hear his voice, my sheep do what? Hear my voice. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No man will pluck them out of my hand. My father who gave them to me, he gave those sheep to me. He's given them and nobody's able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Let me tell you something. Safest place you can be is in the hands of Jesus and the hands of God the Father. I like what the old country preacher said. He said, for the devil to get my soul and take my soul to hell, he'd have to pry back the hands of Jesus. Then he'd have to pry back the hands of Almighty God the Father. Then he'd have to break the seal of the Holy Spirit to get to me, and when he did that, praise God, he'd be a saved devil. (laughs) Named in the will. Number five, what's the inheritance? What is the inheritance in this will? What's the inheritance of the Lord's last will and testament? Verse 15, he says, "...so that they may receive the promised eternal inheritance." Well, inheritance, what did it mean under the first covenant? What did God promise the Jewish people under the first covenant? An inheritance. I'm taking you out of slavery, and I'm taking you a land that I promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. It'll be your land. And those freed slaves were led by God. They were freed by God's grace. They were purchased by the blood that was put over their doors. And they were led through the baptism of the Red Sea. And they were guided by the Spirit of God. And they were fed with the manna. And they marched into victory with God giving the victory. And the land was divided for them by God himself. Now, in the New Covenant, what's our inheritance? You see, we're redeemed, right? We are the redeemed. Verse 15, we have been redeemed. We have been redeemed from those sins. The redeemed means we've been purchased. We were slaves and we've been freed, purchased, and set free. But here's the amazing story of us who are in this second covenant. We're slaves who have been purchased with the blood of Christ. We've been set free and now we've been adopted into the family. And we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus. We're part of the family, we're in the will. Well, what's our inheritance? All that was lost. What was lost for mankind? Paradise. It's lost. Perfect life, perfect joy, perfect excitement, perfect fellowship, perfect freedom, perfect oneness, perfectly interesting, perfectly new every day. No aging, no sadness, no sickness. It was paradise. It was all loss. Jesus has purchased it all back. And he has freed slaves who are rebels themselves who don't deserve to be in paradise, who deserve to be kicked out of paradise and into hell. But he's purchased them with his own blood. And not only purchased them, but set them free. And not only that, but adopted them. And not only adopted them, but made them joint heirs with him. What a savior. What's the inheritance? Well, you see, friends, listen. This is beautiful. We're priests before the Lord. He's our high priest, and we're priests before the Lord. Guess what the priests got as their inheritance? in the old covenant. They didn't get any land. Here's what God said. Numbers 18:20. The Lord said to Aaron, "You shall have no inheritance in the land. Neither shall you have any portion among them. Listen, I am your portion and your inheritance." Among the people of Israel. Who was richer? The tribe of Judah? The tribe of Issachar? The, tribe, the half-tribe of Manasseh? Who was richer? Naphtali? Ephraim? No, the richest of all, the tribe of Levi. Because God himself was their portion. I was at a beautiful wedding yesterday evening outdoors. His wedding of Bill and Becky Gowder, Pastor Bill and Becky Gowder, their youngest daughter, Kara. Some of you remember them. He's on staff here a number of years, pastor now First Baptist Friendsville. I remember when Kara was born. And beautiful evening But as she came out of the lovely home to come down the walk. You just see, even from a distance, her lip just quivering, kind of (laughs) ashen-faced a little bit. But I was on the next to the last row, and when she got to where she could see down the aisle, and she saw her fiancé, oh, my word, it looked like she'd swallowed the sun. She beamed, and the smile went on her face because there he is. She wasn't noticing all that she had planned for months. She wasn't noticing the beautiful setting. She wasn't noticing the lovely trees and the green grass and the blue sky. She wasn't noticing that all she could see was her fiancé, her beloved. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face I shall not gaze on glory but on my king of grace not on the crown he gives but on his pierced hand for the lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land what makes heaven heaven Jesus Without Jesus, it wouldn't be heaven. It's Jesus that makes heaven, heaven. That's the one we long to see. That's the one who has made the will and named us and purchased us. He's the one who is going to give us the wealth. When will that wealth of the Lord's last Will and testament. When will it be given to us? When do we get it? Here's when the will is settled. You see, the will can't be settled until all of the heirs are gathered. All of them. Verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. Judgment. So Christ, having been offered once, he himself has died once, to bear the sins of many. Who are the many? The called. He's been offered to bear the sins of many. He will appear. Do you notice three times the word appear is used here? He uh, Appeared in the presence of God, verse 24. Verse 26, he has appeared once in time to take away sin by the sacrifice of himself and one day he will appear. But this is a different word. It doesn't mean he will just present himself. It means he will come and he will be seen by those who are eagerly Waiting for him. When will these riches come to us? When the executor returns. What was Jesus' last words in the Bible? Do you know what Jesus' last words are in the Bible? His last words. Revelation 21.20. Surely I am coming soon. You men of Galilee... Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you up to heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. We will see the king someday. We will see him. And so I ask you, examine your heart. Is your heart today... Offering the last prayer of the Bible. What's the last prayer of the Bible? It follows the last statement of Jesus. Jesus says, surely I'm coming soon. And the last prayer of the Bible is, even so. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. There's four ultimate realities that are in this passage... There's the reality of death. Did you see that? It's appointed unto all wants to die. The one certain reality of life is you are going to die. And the greatest wisdom in life is to prepare for the one and only certainty you will die. Because after death comes what? The second reality, the reality of the judgment. Jesus said, behold, as I live, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will confess and everyone will give account. Jesus said, I'm coming soon and my reward is with me to give according to every man's work. There's a reality of death. There's a reality of judgment. Your name, your name will be called one day and your family will not go there. You and your husband or your wife will not go there, but you yourself Well, go and stand before Jesus. Death is certain. Judgment is certain. But there's also the certainty of a perfect sacrifice. He has appeared, look at it, verse 26, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I want to tell you something. Listen carefully, brothers and sisters. What I'm about to tell you Jesus is a better savior than you are a sinner. We're pretty good sinners. We're right good at it. But better than our sinning is the saving of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where sin is abounded, grace what? Superabound. Your sin, my friend, take hope in this. Your sins may be as high as Mount Lacan. But what are they compared to the Mount Everest of the grace of God? Your sins are not so great that they're greater than the blood and sacrifice and love and grace of Jesus. That fourth reality is the reality of a personal salvation. He has coming to save those who are looking for him. Those who are awaiting him. (laughs) You see what a Christian? What's a Christian? A Christian is a follower of Jesus, who at the same time is a waiter for Jesus, awaiting Jesus. We're following and waiting at the same time, and His Spirit is with us. He's given us a down payment of the inheritance to come. That's what the Holy Spirit is. Holy Spirit's just a down payment. That the full inheritance is coming. But until then, we follow. And the way we follow best is every day if we would just think this could be the dawning of that day. This could be the dawning of the day. I've often heard it said, haven't you? Where there's a will, there's a way. You ever heard that? Let me tell you something. Let's change it. Because there's a will, there's a way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. But you can come. And the reason there's a way is because there's a will. Planned, provided, performed by the Lord Jesus Christ.